A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Truth and Movies. On today's episode, director Bart Layton stops by to talk about his upcoming Stranger Than Fiction heist film, American Animals. We'll then review the week's new releases, Black Klansman, Spike Lee's undercover cop drama starring John David Washington and Adam Driver, and the Ian McEwan adaptation The Children Act, starring Emma Thompson and Stanley Tucci. Then for Film Club, we're looking back at Spike Lee's debut feature, She's Gotta Have It. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Right, so we're coming to you live on tape from Somerset House uh, for this very special live edition of Truth and Movies. First of all, I'd like to welcome to stage the director of American Animals, which is premiering tonight at Film 4 Summer Screen, Bart Layton. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Bart. Hi, folks. Welcome to the stage. Thank, Thank you for joining us. Yeah, so we pleasure. do have a clip from the film, just to kick us off. Uh, so we should watch that first. This is about American animals. It's about a, an art heist. And this is when we are introduced to the uh, art that they're going to heist. Many of the books in this library have been here since the 19th century, and we are very pleased to be home to some of the rarest editions in the United States. John James Audubon is responsible for this masterpiece here. First edition, Birds of America. He lived here in Kentucky. He had some misfortune in business, went to prison for debt. When he left prison, he headed for the wilderness with a gun, some paint, and a deep desire to paint every bird in America. And when he came back into civilization, he was acclaimed as one of the foremost figures in American art. So how much is it worth? Well, we don't discuss the worth of our books, but I can assure you that Mr. Audubon would never have imagined that his book would be the most valuable in existence. That's the voice of the great Anne Dowd there, who's popped up in so much this year, The Handmaid's Tale, Hereditary, Now American Animals. So Bart, uh, by way of introducing the film, could you give us a one, two line synopsis of this movie? Well, I guess it's a sort of existential heist movie you know it's a movie about um it's a movie about an art theft but it's really i guess a movie about a rather lost group of young men searching in all the wrong places for a, an identity and mm -hmm. a and a way of being different i guess yeah and we should say that you do mix dramatic footage and documentary footage in this film in almost yeah. the inverse of your previous film the imposter which was a documentary mm. with elements of fictional storytelling in there. So at what point did this story come to you and at what point do you think of mixing the two? Uh, 
I suppose I read about the story in a magazine on a, on a flight and I thought it was a great yarn. And as you guys will see, you know, it's a kind of a comedy of errors. And But there was something about the story which just didn't quite sit right. You know, it was, um, you know, this multi-million dollar heist and the target of the heist was were, were these incredibly valuable books. But also the people who did it were pretty well-educated uh, young men in their early 20s from good homes and, you know, good university. And and the more I read about it, I thought there's just something that isn't quite adding up here. You know, the fact that it, I just couldn't understand how they could ever have imagined they would get away with it. Mm-hmm. And if they did, you know, what were they going to do with the money? How were they going to... You know, so I just could, it felt like this incredibly sort of self-destructive act that was never going to end well. Because I thought the story was fun, but I didn't know it was more any more than that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but at that point, these the real guys were all some way into quite a long prison sentence. And uh, and so we, um, my co-producer Poppy, who worked with me on the Imposter, we we found out where they were and we we sort of reached out to them in prison and and basically just said, you know, I'm, I, I really trying to understand more of the why of this can you enlighten us as to you know why you went through it and and it was the things that came back because I think also you know they're in prison they had a fair bit of time on their hands and they hadn't had any counseling they hadn't (laughs) talked to anyone and they started writing these quite extraordinary letters where it all kind of came out and you know one of them Spencer who as you'll see is is the sort of the the central character you know he talked a lot about dreaming of becoming an artist and and you know he is a genuinely very talented draftsman I guess you know all of the artwork in the film is done by him and but he read about all of the great artists that ever existed and the one thing they all had in common was that they'd suffered a whole lot and that they'd had traumatic childhoods and and there he is with nothing but a nice life and a nice house and you know supportive family and you know, if you pick up any screenwriting books, you know, identify your main character and what their problem is. And, you know, here's a guy whose main problem is he hasn't got a problem at all. (laughs) And that felt to me like a really modern idea. And the more I looked at the letters and the more uh, each of the different characters kind of poured out their motivations, the more it seemed that actually, you know, maybe this is not just a cracking yarn, but it's sort of a story of... Of, our t- of this quite lost generation who were mm-hmm. struggling with not just, you know, ideas of masculinity, but this increasing pressure that I think, you know, we are dealing with, you know, more in, in, in our culture of this need to be a somebody. You know, how do you leave a mark on the world? And it almost kind of doesn't matter whether it's a, a good mark or a bad mark. The idea of, you know, success has shifted from what their parents had, which was nice houses and nice... to how do I uh, leave a mark, you know, how do I become noteworthy in some way? It really interests me about this, this mix of fact and fiction here because you're dealing with a real crime, real criminals who've served mm. time that are, that, are, that are asked to comment on the, the action versus a story which is in its own way using strategies to thrill and excite and amuse or all the, all of the various emotions. As a filmmaker, as the central storyteller, how do you kind of keep an even keel there between the two without giving it all over to one or the other? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think you said it well. You know, it is kind of an inverted version of, you know, The Imposter was certainly it was a doc with dramatic elements, and this is really a drama with these sort of non-fiction mm. elements. And, and I guess, for me, I had this sort of itch that I wanted to scratch, which was it felt like, you know, is there a new way of telling a true story we haven't mm. quite seen before? You know, we've all been to the movies, and the first thing it says is this is, you know, inspired by true events or based on our truth. And then you kind of have that sneaking suspicion that everything that follows is a kind of wild sort of Hollywoodization of it. And then at the end you get a few pictures of the real people and then you go and Google, you know, did Molly from Molly's Game really sound <laughs> like um, Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, and all of that sort of stuff. And you kind of think maybe there's this other way of doing it, which is that... You, it's sort of greater than the sum of its parts. You know, by having the real guys, you're not really allowed off into movie world where the consequences don't really affect you. You're constantly reminded, this really happened. So what's happening in this movie and where this whole escapade is going is real and the consequences are going to be real. And I think because of that, and you guys can judge for yourselves, I guess, in a minute, but because of that, your emotional investment in the characters and the stories is great. You you play along. And I think, you know, most of us here are probably not born criminals. And I think if you wanted to find out what it feels like to try to attempt to pull off a robbery, you, this will give you a pretty good idea. Yeah. And it's, in, it's interesting. It's not much of a spoiler, but when they're planning the heist, there's no guidebook to how to put together a successful heist. They're looking at movies. Yeah, and yeah. They went to Blockbuster and rented every movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if, if they'd bothered to watch them to the end, they would have realised that pretty much all of them end really bad. Yeah, they don't get away. <laughs> but were you looking at movies to figure out how to? Yeah, put we had this sort of saying like amongst uh, you know the actors and I, you know, that in their heads it was Ocean's Eleven, and in reality it was sort of Dog Day Afternoon, and, and <laughs> right, uh, yeah, and. You know, Dog Day Afternoon was a, a big reference and one of my favourite films, and that was something I made them all watch. But then also, you know, it was important that... You know, the idea I had was that the form and structure of the movie should sort of mirror their increasing detachment from reality, you know, mm. their descent into this, into this kind of movie fantasy. So what you see is that we start off with you know, a feel and cinematography and the score is all quite naturalistic. And then as they get lost in this sort of, this movie fantasy, which gets, starts sort of snowballing, we edge towards the tropes of, you know, some of those heist movies that, that we all love, but also were hugely influential to them. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's more steady cam, there's more, you know, it, it feels, it starts to grow in scale, the, mm -hmm. the colour starts to change, it becomes this other thing up to the point where they cross this line that should never get crossed, mm -hmm. basically. Mm. I'd like to ask about the cast, because mm. the cast of actors you put together, Barry Keoghan, who's yeah. uh, Spencer, the, the main character, but then also Evan Peters from TV and all sorts, and Blake Jenner from Every yeah. Once Some. It's such a great young cast of, uh, yeah. of guys there. What was it like putting that, that cast together? I guess it was sort of like how you put a, like a heist together, mm. you know, in a way, in that like I, I had to find... Warren, who is uh, the sort of charismatic heart, you know, he's the guy, the Danny Ocean, I suppose, mm -hmm. of the thing. And I wasn't familiar with Evan. Um, I'd seen, you know, that, that great scene in X-Men, you know, where yeah. time stops and all the rest of it. And um, But he did this audition, which was just 
kind of right all right cool off the search you know we're done you know and then we sat down in LA and we sort of you know seemed to get on well and talked about what it was that he loved about it because I think there were a lot of people who kind of needed to understand you know because in the screenplay you have the voices of the real guys as well as Mm -hmm. obviously the acted roles and I think you know there were a few people who were like how the how's this gonna work and in all honesty I just hoped it was gonna work I mean Mm -hmm. You, whenever you do something new, there isn't really a... It's very exciting, but it's quite terrifying because even the financiers are going, well, if this doesn't work, can we just take that out and then we'll have <laughs> just the movie bits? And I was like, well, you know, to use Evan's line, you're either in or you're out. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how it's got to be. But until you get into the edit, you don't really know that that's going to work in the way it does on paper. And so, so it, it, they were all very up for that experiment. And then once I had Evan, then I, I looked at, you know, now, I don't know whether you guys are aware, but, you know, self-taping is a huge thing, you know. So you do a lot of auditions in person, but right. people send self-tapes. And Barry, this, this little Irish kid who looked about 14, <laughs> sent this self-tape in, and it was unbelievable. But I was like, well, obviously, that's never going to work, because he's, like, he's barely pubescent. It's, uh, and... Um, but I just couldn't stop thinking about it. It was, you know, there's no hint of an Irish accent. It was something totally mesmerising about him and even the setup that he was filming himself in was this kind of extraordinary, chaotic <laughs> bedroom that he, you know, and uh, the voices off screen. I just kept thinking about it and then went through a long process and sat down with... Because there was a point where the script went out and then every hot young actor in Hollywood wanted to do it, which was amazing yeah. and... So for the finances, it was exciting, but it was. I think when you guys see it, it'll make sense. I didn't want faces that were recognisable. I wanted, and I also didn't want kind of movie faces. I wanted really authentic, kind of real feeling faces, and um, and Barry is definitely that. And so in the end, I just brought him, Evan from LA and Barry from Dublin. We met in New York and did a kind of chemistry read, and it, it Barry had made this pathetic effort to grow some sort of bum fluff around <laughs> and um but actually it worked out fine you know i was worried because evan's nearly thir- evan's like 31 and barry's 25 okay and i thought ah, is it gonna be like older brother younger brother? but it was great and then we were kind of off to the races and then the other two blake i'd seen from everybody wants some and he fits the role of this very kind of all-american slightly you know in the physicality and I think I probably pushed him as hard as you can push anyone in an audition to see what, you know, because there's, there's a scene which you guys will see, which is a big scene for him, and, and I kind of needed to know that he would, and, you know, he's not just the pretty face, he's really the real deal. And so, and that was it. And then Jared, two years ago, was working in a mine in Manitoba, you know, he, he and then and making money as a cage fighter on the side. And, then, and he came in to read for Blake's role, and like Barry, he's got this thing of, total authenticity mm-hmm. and neither of them know really I don't think they really know how they do what they do but when it happens you just like you, you know my job I guess is sort of look, get out of the way and keep them as present as possible I'm just shocked to hear that Barry's in his mid-twenties after Dunkirk yeah. and killing Segadiri's in this line of magnetic younger men yeah uh, yeah prepubescent almost um I don't want to keep you you've got a premiere to get to but uh, since we're doing a bit of a Spike Lee special at the back end of this yeah. podcast I wonder do you have a, a favorite Spike Lee movie maybe even Inside Man if you're yeah, going I mean, through the heist films 
I mean, I guess the one that, you know, do the right thing is the thing that really sticks. And I haven't watched it for a long time. But Inside Man was, you know, I, obviously I watched a whole load of heist movies. And, um, and there's that thing, you know, the thing about the heist movies that structurally they're really good for the kind of what happens next of it. You know, you're constantly, well, who's, who do we... And, you know, in terms of introducing the characters, there's a neatness to how it all works. And there's a kind of and you're constantly waiting for how it's going to pay off. And I think Inside Man was one of those mm. few that sort of delivers on that promise. You know, it kind of, it's great at the beginning, and it's still good, and it's still, you know, and so I think, yeah, I think that was, that was great. But, yeah, Do the Right Thing, for sure, is the one that's... That's the one. Me. Mm. Anyway, Bart, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure, guys. Thank you. For All the best me. for the premiere tonight. The film is out in the UK on the 7th of September, and we'll be reviewing it on the podcast in two weeks' time. Thank you. Hope you guys enjoy it. <laughs> and now we'll be reviewing this week's new releases, but I won't be doing that on my own. I'm going to welcome to the stage Hannah Woodhead of Little White Lies and Little White Lies head honcho himself, David Jenkins. <laughs> How are we doing, guys? It's getting comfy. Just thinking, okay. Somerset House is right next to the Cultalt Gallery. It's got impressionist and post-impressionist art. You're going to stage a heist? Best time to do it would be during a film about an art heist, right? <laughs> if only we weren't doing a podcast. Best cover. My alibi was doing a podcast all along, Your Honour. But speaking of Your Honours, we need to talk about High Court Judge <laughs> Emma Thompson. <clears throat> We're going to crack on with... Very what a nice segue. segue. <laughs> We're like laughing a... at this segue, but if you'd seen the film, you'd be laughing too. <laughs> I promise. Um, should we crack on with the children act? This is based on the novel, the same name by Ian McEwan. Emma Thompson is a high court judge. He must juggle her responsibilities at home and at work. But these two worlds collide when she presides over a case involving a young Jehovah's Witness whose family are refusing a life-saving blood transfusion. So you've come to change my mind. Straighten me out. No, Adam, I need to know what's best for you. Oh, please, miss. Set me on the path of righteousness. I have to be sure you know what you're doing. Leukemia is a very serious illness. Refusing a blood transfusion when it could save your life. Some people think you've been unduly influenced by your parents and the elders. Others think that you're awfully clever and we should just let you get on with it. Should we? Let you do yourself in? Somehow I've got to decide. I think it's my choice. I'm afraid the law doesn't agree. The law is an ass. So they say. Do they say? <laughs> they say. Is that, is that a thing? Is that Shakespeare the or law something? Is an ass. The law is an ass. Why would that kid be quoting Shakespeare, I wonder? There are a lot of things the kids say in this film that I don't understand, like, where it comes from. David, do you want to set us off on the children act? Um, were you excited to go and see Richard Eyre's latest? Not really. <laughs> um, it's a really strange film. and you know, I mean, I guess you could say sometimes that strange is, is better than bad. But, um, <laughs> but I, I will say, on, uh, you know, as a sort of positive... A note to start with that I have thought about it a lot 
I have, <laughs> but, I, but I have thought about how bad it is. So, I mean, that, that's, you know, peaks and troughs, I guess. So, so, yeah, you have this setup where Emma Thompson's high court judge, she's, she's busy with her, her trials and her cases, and she's very cold to her husband, Stanley Tucci. Um, you might say there's, you know, lifeblood lacking in their relationship, uh-huh. which she is taking the decision not to allow back in uh, or, or allow new blood into, into it. So they have a bit of a fight and uh, Stanley Tucci, in a kind of, a bit of a weird move, he just kind of rolls up and says, we haven't been intimate for 11 months, so I'm going to go and like sleep with one of my students now. Just FYI. I think it's a fellow professor, not a, not a student. Oh, okay. It's a no, that, does that make it any better? She's a statistician. Oh, yeah. Statistician. Statistician. You know, sneaky mathematicians. So anyway... She's a bit miffed at that, changes the locks, <laughs> and goes to work. Um, Immediately changes sorry. the locks, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, you know, that's her, that's her kind of take that's on things. She's, she's not happy. Uh, but then we see her in her professional life, where she's a serious woman, dealing with very serious cases like, um, you know, the, the, the film begins where she's judging on conjoined twins and whether they should be split to save one so of them. a literal King Solomon sort of deal. <laughs> it it, it really know? is. And um, you get, there's a really nice, one of the nice elements actually is, you, it's, I don't know if it's filmed in the, over the road at the Royal Courts of Justice, but you, you see her in her chambers and it's a sort of mild comedy of errors where they're kind of running around and spilling coffee and there's, there's oh, yeah. mild... she, she has her clerk who's just running around with yeah. Yeah, cups of tea and he's, biscuits. And, yeah. He's a bit of a push-around guy and... Yeah. Uh, She'll knock on the door, she'll go into the court, and she's kind of boss bitch level. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, you know, ironically, you might say, she uh, has to deal with an actual case about a young boy who needs new blood, mm-hmm. a blood transfusion to save his life from leukaemia. But his uh, Jehovah's Witnessness means that he is uh, not allowed to ha- have that done to him. Uh, his faith... Uh, uh, his parents are very much of the of the uh, view that he should martyr himself for the cause. And he's six months away from his 18th birthday, so still technically a minor, but they say he's such a, a strange and unusual child, very you know, willful, and she decides to go and have a chat with him. And I think one of the things to note is, you know, in, like, courtroom dramas, mm-hmm. this is a classic thing in a courtroom drama where something weird happens and the judge is like, I'm going to allow this. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to see, let's hear this, you know, yeah. this unorthodox thing that's going to happen. Well, th- in this, there's a kind of flip reversal in that Emma Thompson, the judge, is the one who does the, I'm going to do a crazy thing now. And um, uh, entirely in, not in keeping with, with uh, the, the, the procedures of things, she decides she's going to personally visit him on his potential deathbed to try and, like, turn him round. And they have a tender moment, and what, you know, they have a sing song, don't they? they? Sing, they do and they, a have, they have a little sing song. He's learned to play guitar, and they sing some uh, yates together, yeah. which is nice. Um, but it's it's a very funny thing because you know apparently, like the the film is called The Children Act, and that is the law by which um, minors under eighteen are essentially under the jurisdiction of the hospital mm. when it comes to actually deciding matters of life and death. So. She didn't really need to go. She just needed to, like, do the law. Yeah. Um, it's funny because it's a film where you have two, the two main characters having a conversation about 
this like giant plot hole. Mm. <laughs> they never so, they never resolve that either. They just kind of go, this film shouldn't exist. Yeah. And then they just go, okay, well, anyway. There's, there's the Radio 4 programme, Moral Maze, and this just felt like a film that is all about, you know, oh, let's get deep into the moral, uh, ethical it's questions moral, moral around Moral Maze this. meets Casualty. <laughs> yes, I In both tone and production values. Ooh. Yeah. Sorry, it looks I, like a BBC like. I will say it isn't shot it with any more brio than a BBC no. drama. It's very it? grey. It, I mean, I have to give it kind of props because that's what London looks like. It's just grey. <laughs> very grey. It's rainy. Lots of bridges, like lots of shots of her walking under bridges. Walking across, yeah, Waterloo Bridge or Blackfriars Bridge. Yeah. You know, kept, kept thinking that I could see Ethan Hunt running in the background or something, <laughs> yeah, jumping from building to building. Oh, oh, the, the random trip to Newcastle. They're like, oh, yes, we must go to Newcastle. It's for her favourite city, that... you know, she says. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. my favourite Did they explain That's why she went to Newcastle? That's one of the main Newcastle? character, like, sh- character she shading. Like, she plays the piano and she likes Newcastle. That's her character. So that, that said, I would, uh, like, I think what's really interesting about this film is that, you know, it's, a, it's based, as you say, on Ian McCune's mm-hmm. novel. He, actually, he adapted the screenplay himself. It is, like, objectively... A really duff story, <laughs> right. like you know. The, you know however way you you, you you know you look at it, it's just like no, this doesn't. I, <laughs> this doesn't make basic sense. And um, <laughs> Emma Thompson is like you know she's gone for it. Yeah, she's when, taking it all at face value. Mm-hmm. She's gives, she gives a really like you know it's a solid performance in a film that is like pretty bad. You know? Yeah. When was the last time you saw Emma Thompson giving a, you know, a yeah. lead performance? This is almost like the feature-length version of what she was doing in Love Actually, this sort of this strong woman in a situation where everything around her is chipping away at that strength. Where men are just terrible. Men are terrible. Like, all the way through both films. Just... But this, I'm thinking of the poster, and the poster is very much Thompson mm. and Tucci on screen together. <laughs> at, at last. last. <laughs> at last. Thompson and Tucci. We've been clamouring for it. And really, Stanley Tucci's not in that much of the film, He's really. He's so miscast in this mm. film. Anyone that knows Stanley Tucci will say... Kind Personally. Of, Personally, <laughs> if you are friends He's with Stan. the Tucci's, I am... Um, you know, anyone will say he's the most kind of, he always plays these very affable characters. He's mm-hmm. very like, he's got a twinkle in his eye. And this film is just like, you're expected to believe he's a complete bastard. Mm-hmm. And I was, they should have gone for someone, I don't know, I'm, I've been trying to like think who I would have cast instead of Stanley Tucci in this role. Roger Allen, Kieran Hines. <laughs> Kieran Hines is a good one. Peter Gabriel. What? Not Tucci. Literally anyone. I Tucci would have cast would be... before, before I cast Tucci. And he, I, I, I love him and I was sad because you do get this kind of, like, you're expecting like, a good, healthy amount of them together and you get maybe like three scenes. Yeah, but what three scenes, scenes, I guess. Like, <laughs> the thing to also add as well is that um, one of the major failings of this film, I thought, is... I mean, you heard in the clip the character of Adam, who's the young kid, the, the sort of just oh God, a minor, yeah. is going to be 18 soon, who is on, you know, is potentially going to, going to sacrifice himself. It's like, you know, I don't know if Ian McEwan has either forgotten his own childhood, <laughs> has never met a child, or was actually the lamest child ever himself. I think oh, he might but... be remembering his childhood and thinking that is still how children talk. Because this this whole, like, he just doesn't talk how any teenager I've met ever talks. Do you know what it reminded me of? Anyone remember American Beauty? (laughs) Just checking. Um, It's been a while. But, like, um, there's a... Wes Bentley's Bentley's character, he's like, oh, I just filmed a plastic bag and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And that is basically his character. character. That's... that's, uh, 
<laughs> it's um, also not a great performance by Fionn Whitehead, who it's nice uh, he gets from, more from to Dunkirk. Like, he gets to say some things in this film, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. yeah, so Fionn Whitehead lines. is the main character in Dunkirk, who is who, who you know he, he he's great reacting to to bombs. Yeah, but like <laughs> being shell shocked by uh, by Christopher Nolan, he was pretty good. He's wasn't scowling. He? He's very good at that. But in this, he's just kind of. And I don't think it's his fault. I think it genuinely is. It's one of the worst scripts I've like had to witness. And it's a film that has very odd class politics. Oh, really, yeah. it, it gets better. I promise. I'm sorry. We're starting on a downer, but we're going to um, go. We're going to go. I, oh, yeah. I think part of the problem here, and it's the same with On Chesil Beach. When you have an author who's written a book and they adapt their own book for the screen, I don't know, but I think they probably are pretty precious about their words, and they don't want to cut anything because they're mm. like, "Oh, this is my." This is my masterpiece. I must, I must have all the dialogue I've written on the screen. And there are exchanges and there are long sort of monologues that you're just like, no one wants this. No one needs this. And he could have, I think he should have given it to someone else. Someone that could have made it feel a bit fresher and a, a little less kind of flowery and literary, which it, it just doesn't translate. And Richard Eyre, who actually directed Notes on a Scandal, which is mm. one of my favourite films, which is you know, I'm sure not a lot of people, it's one of their favourite films, but he can do like really good sort of like solid, twisty literary adaptations. But this just, I feel like there were too many things going on at once and it just all ended up a bit of a, a bit of a mess. Yeah, should we deliver the, the killing blow? So we're going to, to put our scores to this now for anyone who doesn't listen to the podcast. It's in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Uh, David, I'll come to you first. It looked like... Horribly middle brow from the outset. So I'd probably say it's about two stars. Yeah, two for anticipation. And then probably it's twos across the board for me. Mm -hmm. it, it, it wasn't an outright kind of offensive thing, but um, I was squirming a bit while watching it. Was some, some, some of the plot holes were like the size of Newcastle, in fact. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Newcastle gets a good showing in this film. Like, it's a lot of love for Newcastle. Hannah, your scores? Yeah, same as David. It's, it's solid twos across the board. I will say I, I railed a bit against Ian McEwan. He did write like a, one of my favourite books, which is First Love, Last Rites, right. which was one of his earlier books. And I, I, I don't know, it just feels like this is very um, kind of old-fashioned mm. and, uh, yeah, I just I, a very strange mm. film. I have no idea who it's for. I have no idea why it's been made or what it's trying to say about anything. Sorry. <laughs> Apologies to me, McEwen, maybe. Well, for me, I mean, in that Venn diagram of potential audience, the Thompson Tucci, I'm right in the middle there. So actually three in anticipation for me. I like both those actors, but yeah, two's enjoyment for, and in retrospect as well. So that's the, the children act. We promise there are better films in coming. this week. Go and watch <laughs> it's it. It's Friday. Um, who's, who's been convinced by us either way? Who's going to go and see the children act after that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> Let us know what you think, maybe. The Tooch crowd's in. You can let us know what you think, actually, on Twitter, at LWLies, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com, or uh, on the website, lwlies.com slash podcast. But up next, uh, we're going to talk about Black Klansman, the Spike Lee movie, and um, uh, I'll set up the, the clip now. Black Klansman, Spike Lee's new film, is based on the true story of Ron Stallworth, a black police detective in Colorado Springs, who in the late 70s infiltrated a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. In the film, Stallworth's played by John David Washington, son of Denzel, 
and Adam Driver is Flip Zimmerman, the white colleague who becomes the face of Stalworth as he starts to attend KKK meetings. We have a clip here in which Stalworth is confronted by Patrice, the president of Colorado College's Black Student Union, about his conflicted interests. You can hate me all you want, all right? Just promise me you won't go to that protest. I'm going, we're going. What are you talking about? I can't get into specifics, but today the Klan is planning an attack. Then we have to tell the people. It's not an option. What's wrong with you? No one else can know while it's an active investigation. Active investigation in Preta, how do you know that? Are you a pig? No. What are you then? Wanna sit? No, I'll stand. A clip from Black Klansman there. Uh, David, you and I saw this at Cannes where it won the Grand Prix. So Hannah, you're a bit fresher on this than we are. Uh, so yeah. were you excited to see a new Spike Lee joint? Who isn't? I think uh, no matter what your opinions are on Spike Lee, I think he has a definite opinion, a point of view, and I think it's always exciting when he announces a new project, whether it's a film or a TV show or a documentary. I think he consistently is churning them out for a start. He's, you know, he, he's consistent. And this, from the second it was announced, I was, I was like, yeah, I'm here for this. It sounds crazy. It sounds like an incredible story, even without the kind of added bonus of this cast, which is like flawless. I mean, mm. Adam Driver is one of those actors who I don't really think he's made a bad choice. He's worked with some of the best directors in the world and he's only kind of early 30s. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was I was really down for it, and um, I I've been twice now in the space of about a fortnight. I, I loved it that much, and um, I think it's a difficult film. I think it's a challenging film. It's confronting and it's important. And I think it should be kind of seen by as many people as possible. It's yeah. it's very much. I hate it when people say this is a movie for like the times, but it it is and. That's his point. This whole film is kind of like him screaming, like right at you. What? Look! Look at this! Look at what's happening right now in the world. It's so interesting. It's all those things and more as well, because mm. it's for the first time probably since Inside Man, his most successful mainstream movie. It's a genre yeah. film. It's a cop, it's undercover a cop, cop film. drama. Yeah. Uh, David, were you a fan of back at Cannes? Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, like I think in Cannes, you, you're watching a lot of kind of heavy, arty you know, fair, and then to be able to, like, see something like this, which is very, like, energising, and, you know, Spike Lee is known for his, you know, his, he, he has a very, en like, energetic camera flying all around the place, <laughs> darting towards people's faces and all these kind of weird tilted angles and things like that, so it's very, like, it's a just on, a, on that very superficial level, it's just a, you know, really fun film to watch. With Spike Lee, I'm someone, I kind of, Dip in and out, really. I, I, there's, a, there's a couple I haven't seen recently, and uh, and then I will see a few, and then I don't see a few more, and then I come back to him. So I, I've got a few sort of holes in my filmography, but I'm just glad he's out there doing what he's doing. Um, yeah, his reason. Also, to add, this is a cop film, yeah. but it's also it's also a comedy. Exactly. I, mean, would, I think I, I read an interview with him where he doesn't like the word comedy applied to this film. It's a film that uses humour, and yeah, there's a right. lot of it. It's a very entertaining film, packed with a lot of that 
you know, Spike Lee has a very strong voice that comes through in all his characters, and it definitely comes through in all this, and exchanges and conversations that you'd expect to see in a Spike Lee movie. But it's been a bumpy ride for him in terms of his films in the last few years. He did Chirac, which went straight to Amazon, I think, in the end, and he met, had a, made a Kickstarter-backed vampire movie, and before that did Old Boy. So it's, for me, it's such a, a pleasure he's, and a delight. He's been in the wilderness for a while. To see but, him yeah. just come out of the gates and make a film that from the opening uh, frame is just so confident in what it's doing. In fact, it, it, it's so confident in what it's doing that it doesn't actually have a sort of in-world scene for maybe 10 minutes. It starts out with uh, a sort of in-world video delivered by Alec Baldwin in character that's a sort of a white power In character video. as Dr. Kenan Beauregard, which exactly. is such a fantastic name. Or is that actually the first scene? Or is the first scene a clip from... Um, from Gone with the Wind, in fact. So it's before even, you know, we get to Spike Lee, we've had the history of cinema and the history of, of racial hatred almost re represented. It's a film that I think explores this, these sort of dual poles of like black power and white power. Mm -hmm. It is the incredible true story of this, this guy, Ron Stallworth, who, to sort of put this in a, the film in a nutshell, it's like, it's a film about the, maybe the ultimate crank call. You know, <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. It, he calls up David Duke, Mm -hmm. Grand and Wizard. Grand Wizard of the Ku the, the, the sorry. Oh, sorry, director of the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> at this point, but um, uh, who um, is played by Topher Grace. Mm -hmm. Great casting. In a, in a very, very funny casting. But David Duke is someone who's still like out there now. He's, he, mm. you know, he regularly endorses Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to see this, this figure, this very public figure who is back in the 70s and, and still a bit of a dick then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, huge but, dick. Yeah. And the setup is that over the phone, um, Ron Stallworth is able to, you know, induct himself into the Ku Klux Klan and actually convince them <laughs> just through talking to them that he is going to be a valuable member of the group. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously when he's invited to meet them face to face, he can't. Um, for the obvious reason, and and that's when he inducts Skip Zimmerman, Flip Zimmerman, Flip Zimmerman. my mistake, played by Adam Driver, to actually be his avatar. Be, be his be his avatar. And there, there's a really interesting dynamic because there's lots of kind of there is a sort of like director actor relationship actually at the center center of the film where you've got John David Washington talking into an earpiece and and mm. an Adam Driver carrying out these instructions and. It's a very interesting depiction of the Ku Klux Klan because they are, they are, it's this very sort of weird mix of like stupid and dangerous. Yeah. And that mix actually makes them feel more dangerous. You know, mm -hmm. like they're very combustible. They want action. They want to do stuff. And they're stupid enough to, to just do it really. So it's more, yeah, are they stupid enough to actually go through with all these things and, you know, that they're talking about? Um, it's such an interesting, suspenseful setup to have these almost triple layers of undercover. And then halfway through the film, it just seems that Spike Lee is just throwing so many ideas and themes into the screenplay. He co-wrote the screenplay but into the film as it goes along, um, including the revelation that comes quite early in the film that Flip Zimmerman is Jewish, you know, yeah. so is also a target for the Ku Klux Klan. And that adds an extra layer of tension, but also this opens up the themes to who is actually at danger here in, in a world where white power may, may be on the rise. They have this whole kind of short exchange, which is an idea that the film doesn't really explore about passing, where um, mm. Ron's talking to Flip about him being Jewish and Flip's kind of saying, yeah, I never really thought about this before because I can kind of, I wasn't raised Jewish, I, was, I didn't have a bar mitzvah. Mm. 
And Ron says to him, uh, you've been passing your whole life as a wasp, which is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And this is a thing that happens in society historically. And there's, there's a whole kind of renewed conversation about it today around um, people, black people and people from um, ethnic minority communities who are able to kind of like just assimilate themselves. And this is one of those things that he doesn't really have enough time to explore because there are so many other things going mm. on. It's worth saying as well that the kind of key female character in the film gets a bit of like short shrift. She's played by Lauren Hillier, she's called Patrice, and she's the leader of this black power movement at the uh, university. And she kind of, you know, they have a couple of exchanges between her and Ron. But it feels like, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but I can see a lot of the criticism around this film is about her character and about how she's treated in the Mm. film by the kind of narrative. I totally think that is justified criticism. But at the same time, it's it's so hard for me to criticise this film because it is the Ron Stallworthy story. It's Mm. this narrative based on a memoir. And I think the based is a very important distinction. A lot of people have been like, Boots Riley, who did um, sort of a film called Sorry to Bother You, which is out in the States, posted this kind of like um, four-part, like... I wouldn't, Twitter I, essay. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say it was like a takedown, not, which not is what the, the, the Guardian were like, <laughs> Boots Riley attacks Spike Lee. And it, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't like no. come for him. He just kind of pointed out that the film could be seen as pro-cop, mm-hmm. which is... Yeah, it kind of is like the, the police are good guys in this film, which is a very, very problematic thing in the current you know, atmosphere in America to be portraying the police as like this positive force for good. When a lot of the time, as Patrice says in the film, sorry, I know I'm talking a lot now, uh, she says in the film, it's cops killing them, you know, and that I, I can totally understand that, like where this criticism has come from. But for me, it's like a fantasy and it's a narrative and it's a, it's a film. It's a very self-conscious film. It's aware of its own existence as a pop culture product. Mm-hmm. You can see these bits later on where they're talking about black exploitation films and you yeah. have the kind of films like popping up on screen, the uh, posters. Like coffee and you know, yeah. Pam Grier movies and Superfly. Exactly. And, yeah. and it's built as an object, an artefact, this film, which I think is what makes it kind of so fascinating mm. to see a film that not only confronts this historical racism in the United States and present-day racism, but serves as a kind of cultural document within that as well. It's in dialogue with the way that we've seen all of these forces and themes portrayed on screen from you know, the shot from Gone with the Wind at the beginning is mm. of, 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 of this, this tragic field of slaughter and a, a sort of tattered southern flag. And, you know, and then from, from there on, we, we talk about black exploitation films. And it's... Not, birth of a nation we, we, as well. we can't really spoil the back half of the film there's a very powerful and, and, and interesting use of documentary footage yeah. in the film as well which is something that Spike Lee's always done if you think about the opening of Malcolm X and the use of the Rodney King uh, footage there to, to use something from the everyday to disrupt the sense of a bio, biographical biopic historical drama yeah. and he's such a fascinating filmmaker in the way that he can deploy that he's one of our great film historians and film critics as filmmakers, if you think about and, his films. And a kind of polemicist as well. Polemicist, but also he's often dismissed as an angry black man or, or a, you know, he makes satire or broadsides. I think that there's something really intelligent and clever here that's deftly put together. And it is angry, and it should be angry. Mm. 100% this should be an angry film, because it's not, it's not okay. What is going on is not okay. And it's strange, so much of the criticism around this film has been either A, it's too angry, <laughs> it's, it's too angry, it's not subtle enough, or B, 
is not angry enough. And go far he, enough. He can't yeah. do right for doing wrong, I feel. Like, obviously, we as an all-white panel are kind of like a bit sheltered from the realities of what this lived experience must be like. But I do feel that he's trying to kind of make an address for the state of the nation yeah. as it is now. And that's what it feels like to me. It doesn't, it's not offering answers because there aren't any answers. I feel like it's pointing out the hypocrisy of kind of trying to be one thing all the time. There's this whole exchange with Patrice and Ron where she's like, how can you uh, reconcile like being a cop with your blackness? And I don't think Spike has answers. No. And sometimes it's kind of good for these big figures to say, look, I don't know what the answer is to this. I think we've just kind of got to work harder. Yeah. Oh, take a I, breath. <laughs> I, I, I'd love to be able to drill down into specifics. Unfortunately, we can't go into spoilers. So let's go into some scores. Hannah, do you want to go first once you've got, caught your breath? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was sad to not be at Cannes to witness this uh, firsthand. So it was like a, you know, a good four in anticipation. I really, really hated Old Boy. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of like, Spike, come on, come on. But... It's solid fours across the board. I think it's... It, I've seen, Yeah, I've seen it twice now. And I, I want to go and see it again. I think there's so much to unpack and keep unpacking. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see this kind of having an impact on young audiences and making them want to make films, which is when you watch a film that makes you want to make films, it's the best thing in the world. So, so you liked it? <laughs> just, just a little bit. Just a little yeah. bit. David? I would say the same, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Did it make you want to make films? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um... And make crank calls. And, and the, the, but the, the, yeah, I'm always kind of energised by seeing Spike Lee movies. And um, this one in particular, he's just, I think he's just got the, the ingredients right. I definitely want to see it again. It's, it's definitely a film to go and see, to then go out afterwards and have a long like, talk about it because it is a kind of talking point movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's a film to have arguments about and dialogues. And, and we certainly have already... Um, had arguments with people about it off mic of course but, uh, um, so yeah fours across the board for me as well and for me uh, I was apprehensive just because how scattershot he can be as a filmmaker recently a feature filmmaker at least but yeah wow uh, what, a, what a movie I can't wait to see it again four and four maybe even a five in retrospect in the future you know how I, yeah, how rarely I give yeah, fives yeah. out but who knows so that's Black Klansman, but we're going to keep talking about Spike Lee in Film Club. Up next, we're going to talk about his debut film, She's Gotta Have It. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Released in 1986, She's Gotta Have It heralded the coming of a new voice in American filmmaking and was part of a wave of highly influential independent American cinema. Shot in just 12 days, the film is about Lola Darling, a young artist living in Brooklyn who is simultaneously dating three men. There goes that home wrecker. Home wrecker. I know she's trying to steal my man. No good sleeping around, stank bitch. You know, I don't blame Greer, I blame her. She knew he was mine. If Lola had loved Jamie, it would have been different. Love? Oh, come on, she just them and leaves them. It's sisters like her who are corrupting our men. The few good ones left. I'll be damned if she takes Mars from me. I'm four months pregnant. Mm -hmm. The decent black men are all taken. The rest are in prison or homos. I've gone to bed alone too much already. I'm from Brownsville. We don't play that shit. So what should we do to her? What should we do to her indeed? Hannah, have you seen this one before? Was no, this I haven't. I saw Do the Right Thing when I was at university. And then I kind of, I always meant to watch Who's Got to Have It. I always was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that eventually. So it was nice for me to kind of go back and discover this iconic film. And mm. it, is, it is iconic. You can kind of see the impact it's had on pop culture since. And I think it's, it's incredible this was made in 1986 and so little has changed. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, well, people still have this attitude to women that want to date more than one man at once. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. David? I actually only caught up with this film like within the last year. Mm-hmm. You know when you're like on Netflix and, you, and it's you trawling through the Adam Sandler films and then you suddenly like, like oh my God, what? She, the original She's Got Habits on here. <laughs> I think maybe in, as a kind of contextual piece for the, the TV series that he went on to make. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'll catch up with this. Um, I think a lot of people have always thought that like Spike Lee's kind of big, great early missive was Do the Right Thing and that the films around there, like, you know, Jungle Fever and, mm. uh, and, and She's Got to Have It, are sort of slightly lesser sort of satellite works, maybe, like, building up to this one. One thing to say that, that, that's totally struck me about um, She's Got to Have It is that it is a wonderful New York movie. It's on a par with something like Woody Allen's Manhattan mm-hmm. in the way that it depicts a city in between the scenes of Nola Darling having these kind of conversations with the various men that she's... Having, the, having these relationships with Spike Lee turns his camera on the city yeah. in this really fascinating, pictorial, beautiful way, a very, very atmospheric and ambient. You know, it's all about his love of the city. Mm. It, it kind of gives it this amazing grand context for this very sort of intimate story. Yeah. And such a specific part of the city. So it's in Brooklyn, but it's like Fort Greene, Brooklyn, which is an area he knew very well and, and loved. And what before gentrification made it out to Brooklyn when the, you'd still have artists in their lofts and so on. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I think when you say the attitudes haven't changed, I agree with that, but maybe like the, 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 the landscape oh, probably definitely. has in terms 100%. of like... You wouldn't you know. get the square footage that she has. No. <laughs> um, well, that's one thing. This was recently remade into a series for Netflix and in some ways updated and amended. Both the film and the TV series start with documentary street photography footage of the area. And that's one way that you can actually lay them both <laughs> side by side because it's set in the exact same place now, even 30 years later. It's interesting as well, actually. I, I was doing my reading around this to prepare and um, 
Spike Lee said the only thing that he would change if he could go back and make it again, which he kind of did, is uh, the rape scene, which is this mm-hmm. key moment when Nola uh, has this confrontation with one of her boyfriends and it culminates in a rape scene. And he said he wouldn't have put that in. He, it's the one thing about the film that he thinks is like, shouldn't be there. Yeah. And it's the, the one thing about this film that I really hated. So I was kind of relieved when I read that he was like, I've changed now. I, I can't believe I ever thought that was an acceptable way to have that portrayed in a film. Mm-hmm. Because it does, you know, she's dating these three men and she's very happy with her life until it gets to the point where the men start kind of shaming her and being like, you've got to pick one. And then this rape happens. And she never deals with it. You never get to see how it affects her. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, it happens and then, okay, well, I'm going to just have one boyfriend now. And it's such a, like, a horrible way of like looking at womanhood and agency and, oh God, it, it made me really quite angry. Mm-hmm. I was so, yeah, I was very happy to hear that that's not his opinion now and that he changed it for the TV series. Well, it was one of the few aspects of the film that really felt like this is the first time filmmakers, as a young mm-hmm. filmmaker who hasn't found their voice and you know, yeah. grown mm-hmm. as a storyteller yet. So, but maybe when it like, you know, I mean, you can tell from watching the film that he wasn't someone who's going to be very kind of passive and careful and he's, yeah. he's just throwing it all out there. It's yeah. very exactly. rough and ready. It's rough and ready. It's really bold. It's like, I'm going to throw stuff in there. It's going to be like, you know, it's just going to be honest. It's going to be me and, you know, to hell with the consequences. But yeah. uh, Even the way it's shot, it's shot in 12 days, so most of the takes are first takes. There are some shots where I think you even see sort of them fall out of character as the scene ends. Uh, and then he, you know, Spike Lee, watching this film, it's amazing. He doesn't do so much anymore. But there was that run of his first five or six films where he was in the films himself. He'd have, Just like be the, playing himself, The basically. Spike Lee character. <laughs> and he's in here as Mars Blackman, who became a figure in his own right. He did these Air Jordan commercials for American TV. And it's amazing to go and watch them now. He's a little kind of cycle courier who wears one of those little cycle hats with the... It says Brooklyn on yes. it, yeah. <laughs> I will say that, like, Jamie, who's the kind of main boyfriend, is the least interesting, because Greer, who's the model who she dates, is hilarious. He's just, like, the human embodiment of vanity. And, like, there's this great scene where he's, like, lying in bed, like, trying to get Nola to, like, invite him over, and then she, she's, like, having none of it. And he just goes, eh, and, like, calls another woman. And I was just like, this is, this is great. This is, like pointing out the hypocrisy of gender like standards in America, well, all over the Western world, where it's perfectly acceptable for a man to be dating multiple partners. And it's kind of expected in a way for a young, good-looking man to be like, you know, a bit of a cad. But the second a woman does it, it's like, oh my God, she's, she's a slut, she's a whore. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted more of Greer and Mars. I thought they were just great. They were magnetic on the screen. And Jamie's just like, oh God, this guy. We would call him a f- boy in modern par- parlance. <laughs> Yeah, we rarely Sorry. get to use that word on air. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's going to be bleeps, I'm sure, but for the benefit Sorry. of the audience tonight, they all, they all heard it. I, <laughs> thank you very much. I saw Do the Right Thing right here two years ago uh, on, on a Friday screen. night at some Film for Summer Screen. It was just an incredible night. That's such a perfect film. And yeah. Malcolm X as well. He's, uh, very few filmmakers have made as many perfect films well, as One that. weird one as well, if you like Black Klansman, you should try and seek out this film that he made in like late nineties, I think, called Bamboozled, like two thousand. Two thousand. It's really weird, and he shot it on like sort of consumer grade digital video as well. So it looks terrible. It, <laughs> it, it's got this really kind of like is the TV broken kind of vibe to it. But it's a film about a TV producer who brings back the, the black and white minstrel show, and to his surprise, 
people love it. Yeah. <laughs> to a yeah. surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, almost an air of the producers about it, really, yeah. isn't it? But then also it becomes this commentary on the media landscape. And a film that was quite I know, dismissed or, or, or confused at the time, maybe. A friend of the podcast, The Mag, Ashley Clark, wrote a book about Bamboozled, which is a good follow-up as well. Well, I think it might be a good time to let you all go and see American Animals if you are. Uh, and, w- and we can go off into the night and maybe go and rewatch the children act and see if you like <laughs> it as much a second time. I'm going to write you and make you in some fan mail when I get in. Uh, so, David, so do we know what's on the, ep- the episode next week? Um, I think actually, I do have that written here. So, it's, it's Cold War. Yes. Uh, oh, I an- it another- next week. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I got excited. So this, this cool. won't be in a live setting. We'll be back in our I'll broom, be broom cupboard. We'll still be alive. <laughs> You're not hosting next week, are you? I'm in Venice next week. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I can't believe you would miss the Happy Time Murders for Venice. And then the Happy Time Murders, so, like, which is a fine. sort of uh, Muppets Go Bad. Late Night Muppets. Yeah. So directed by Brian Henson, director yeah. of uh, Muppets Treasure Muppet. Island and Christmas Carol. So. <laughs> We'll see about that. I'll save it for next week. But as homework, I have here Meet the Feebles as film club next week. Is this your pick, David? This is like Peter Jackson's um, pre-Tolkien crazy student puppet porno kind of film. (laughs) It might be a tough one to find, but it's well worth it. It's (laughs) it's kind of weird. (laughs) It's when he was like a proper weird filmmaker, making like exploitation movies before he went coffee table. That sounds delightful. Sometimes I wonder if Film Club is like a serious cultural exercise or just torture that we like to... A glimpse into the mind of Jenkins. We make people watch Hudson Hawk. The Fables is good. We like it. (laughs) We'll have to see. And Hannah, we'll hear what you think about it next week. Uh, Well, thank you to everyone for coming along tonight to Somerset House and uh, being very patient with us as we talk through these films. Thank you, Hannah and David, for joining me. And uh, we'll hopefully see you soon. Have a lovely evening, everyone. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>